Victor Prince, and today is March 24, 1992. I am interviewing Benny G. Rogers about the St. Louis Negro community before, during, and after the years of World War II, but with the emphasis on the war years. This uh, interview is being conducted for the Missouri Historical Society. Mr. Rogers began with the St. Louis American August? August 22nd, August. 1945. And uh, it's still there. Still, no, still here. Still here. Still here. <laughs> Benny, yeah. would you tell me where you were and what was going on in the black community well, in 1940? 1940. One thing about 1940 was a, a very little, well, they're talking about poverty, uh, has a, it, it a cause for the homicides and the crimes of this type of they, this day and age, but uh, uh, they had a lot of poverty in 1940, but they didn't have but a few crimes. And uh, it was a, what you call, that was the, during the time of the Great Depression. And uh, a lot of people, professionals, had to uh, get such jobs as drive the taxi cab. And I was working for Jesse J. Johnson who was uh, a great entrepreneur. He owned a deluxe restaurant and the deluxe cab company and was a dance promoter, promoting all the big bands across the country. And I had an opportunity to work with him and travel with him with bands like Jimmy Lunsford and Duke Ellington and Count Basie and things of that sort. But also in between time was working with the taxi cab company. But then at the latter part of 1940, things began to uh, fall off pretty badly and I really wanted to get out of there. By 1941, the uh, people were getting jobs working in war plants and things like that. They had the Chevrolet Shell and they had a, a, a they had, uh, they had a Curtis Wright uh, aircraft place, but uh, it took an executive order from President Roosevelt to, to force Curtis Wright, which is now McDonnell Douglas, to hire black people. I had, uh, I was, I had an opportunity to uh, leave Johnson and get to uh, the, 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 uh, the work with the war, because I knew then that, that everybody my age was going to have to do something, either get into the war or do something like that. How so, old were you, Benny? Oh, gosh. 1940. 1940. Should be 26. Mm -hmm. I was born in 1914. Okay. But here's what happened. You see, um, because of politics, it was difficult to even get a job in a war plant. There was only one union. The local, the local one part, uh, local party two was the Labor's and Hard Carriers Union for Black People, and then they had. Uh, Another union on Manchester was number one one zero one ten, which was mixed. It was integrated. That was about the only integrated yeah. union that I knew. What and union was that? It was a, the laborers and hard carriers union. Oh, that was the same one. Yeah, it was run by whites, but the black blacks did work mm -hmm. with it. But see, this one on this one in the ten hundred block on North Compton was for all black. You see. I see. But the but the problem was you see was difficult to get a job. You had to uh, go through the politicians to get a job even to be a laborer. 
Well, let me ask you this. Would it be fair to say that Negroes were fighting their own war for democracy on the home front in St. Louis? Oh, sure. Oh, it, well, we've had problems in St. Louis ever since the first boat landed down here in the Mississippi River. We've always had those problems. Still having those problems. Matter of fact, you see, uh, uh, J A. Philip Randolph and T. D. McDeal were amongst the leaders who were pushing President Roosevelt to to force these plants to hire black people. You see, mm -hmm. they even had meetings here in the People's Finance Building at Jefferson and Market. But one of the person who was instrumental in helping them into getting the President Roosevelt to uh, issue this order, Executive Order 8802, was his wife, Eleanor Roosevelt, see, and Mrs. Uh, Mary McLeod Bethune, you know. They actually were the one who urged him to go ahead on and do it because they didn't want that march on Washington in 1941. And after that, this, this is what I'm saying, where the problem came. Now, I had to go, I had to go to N.A. Suisse, the fellow I ended up working for, because he was a Republican, you know, at that time, to a, a white politician in North St. Louis to get him to give me a letter to take to the laborers' union for them to sign me up for membership. You know, what union are we talking about? Local 42. Okay. That's the laborers' union, which was all black. That was on Constant Avenue. See, I had to go, Mr. Sweet sent me with a note to over on, on Hebert Street to a white politician so he gave me a note to give the black man who was running this black laborers union. And did you have a vote in, in this union? Or was no, it yeah, like an auxiliary? No, this is the, 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 the unions were racketeering. This is what the union, this is the way the union did. They, they, they finally, you know, you sit out there in the yard and you wait till some company call to hire you. Understand? Yes. So this was, uh, this, this was the, the the ammunition plant that they were building on Goodfellow at the time. Mm -hmm. Great big structure still out there. But this was where I was first hired. But I had to get to, from this politician, I had to take this note to the union. Was this the U.S. cartridge plant? That's right, U.S. cartridge plant. Okay. They called it the bullet plant, you know, mm -hmm. but which would be correct to say cartridge. But we were only doing the construction work now. This was construction work when they were building it. This was in 1941, early part of 1941, when they were building it. Okay. So what happened, you see, then, they, was, they were racketeering in memberships. When you get to the place where you had paid up your, your, your initial dues for membership, you know, your full pledge, then what they would do, they would work it out with the plant where they would lay you off, then they'd put some more in so to get new people in the membership, see? Oh. You know, building up their membership. So what I did then, I had to come back to the same union and sit around for a while. Then I got a job working out to Weldon Springs, you know, construction job out there. Building that plant. Building that plant and, and inhaling all of that sulfur and stuff like that, you see. But these, I, were, these were all defense plants that were being built for the war. Right. It was in Weldon, right over there in St. Charles. Another, well, I guess you could on the other side of St. Charles. Yeah, but then, you see, it was, then I worked there till that was finished built, being built. Then what happened was, I I was something like, something like a, well, there's no such thing as a black foreman or anything, even 
and Curtis Wright, nothing like a black woman. They, they call you a lead man or something like that. And, and I, what did you do? You did actually did construction work? Did construction work, and out there I ran a, a, a pneumatic hammer, you know. Mm -hmm. And we had, you know, cutting in and building in place, make, building a place for them to make the gunpowder. That's what they were making out now, there. How, was was there black and white men building those plants? Black men never built anything during World War II. Black men were only laborers. During World War II, the black men were laborers or, or had a, were hard carriers. You see, the, all of the carpenters and the people in the plumbing work, the electricians, and all of those people were white. So, what was your job? My job was as a common laborer. I was hauling the you know, lumber on my back and taking it to the white carpenter for him to nail up, to build a structure. And what I was doing with the, uh, using the jackhammer, I was using a jackhammer, a 98-pound jackhammer, cutting the walls in and knocking out rocks and stuff so we could build the pillars and the construction for the plants. See, but then after that job ran out, then, but before that job ran out, I started looking for another job because this was after President uh, Johnson issued Executive Roosevelt. Order 8802. Roosevelt. I mean Roosevelt. Then when he issued that order, then Curtis Wright began building a plant. They, you see, they already had the building out there. The building is still there now, this day. But in order to comply with President's order, they built a Quonset hut type building out there for black people. Understand? Nothing, nothing but black people, except for the supervisors and all that. Now we went to school. So that's right? a, like a separate plant. Segregated school, just like would be in South Africa. Mm -hmm. That's what they had right here in St. Louis in 1941. You see, I was from 41 to 45 when we had. And what happened and was Curtis Wright was building going to build airplanes, is that correct? Curtis Wright built the airplanes that the black men were killed in in war, that the Tuskegee men were using. Those are the planes that were build, built, but was in the segregated plants. We had to go to school. See, we went to school on Delmar Boulevard. They had a separate school. They spent a lot of money sending all of the school. And I graduated as a complicated assembler. So when I got out there, well, through my, when I went to college, you see, I studied commercial art and industrial art, and I learned, and I, I knew about blueprints and things of that sort. So I had the advantage over a lot of people out there, so they made me a lead man out there, you know. I was teaching others how to use the pneumatic river tour and to read the blueprints and stuff like that, but they would never make me a, a foreman or anything of that sort. What they would do, they would have me. And did they have white foremen in the black plant? They had nothing but white foremen. They never had a black foreman all during the war. Anyway. They never had a black foreman or a black supervisor or anything of that sort all during the war. They had, a, they had even uh, black people to be head of the employment offices, you know. Like Sanford Robinson was one. Well, Sanford Robinson was the one in the employment office who would take care of the black people. But everything was, you could not go to the white plant to eat in the restaurant. So you had your own restaurant in there and everything. You had your own, had the own, uh, you know, uh, 
nurses' quarters if you were injured and like that. Toilet facilities. But it was, it was quite often that uh, the white supervisor or the white foreman would quit or something of that sort. And uh, even people with seniority or my expertise, what I would do, they would have me to train the white foreman. I got trained one one time. I trained this great big white fellow who came from somewhere in southeast Missouri who had never worked on an airplane or anything. All he knew how to do was work on gas tanks on trucks. But I had to teach him how to, to work the, to, to, to rivet the span of an airplane wing so he could be my boss and the other black people's boss. See, this, this went on like this. And another thing, you had this International Association of Machinists. They wouldn't admit us as members. See, the blacks could not be members of the union during the war. And uh, uh, even though we couldn't be members when the other people voted to go out on strike, we had to go out on strike too. And it was the most stupid thing I've heard in my life. These people were on a strike for a two cent an hour increase and like that. At one time they had a strike that lasted almost two weeks. And uh, the, the whole two week period, if they would have gotten the increase, the raise wouldn't have been no more than about two dollars and a half a week. See, it, it's just something that you could, could never figure out. No matter how many hours you work, you couldn't. Like, matter of fact, it couldn't have been no more than about a dollar and a half a week. But we had, to, but we had to be out on strike because they were out on strike. So we we were determined to try to join the union. So Attorney Robert Witherspoon and I, what we did was we uh, we tried to sneak some application cards in there and work it out so they wouldn't know our race, you know. Yeah, what? What race we were, you know, whether we were black or white. So we didn't, we tried to pretend that we were white and we sent the cards in and somehow or another some stool pigeon said that we were black so they still rejected. We had meetings all the time on Natural Bridge and Union at the hall there where we were trying to get into the union. They never would let us into the union. We, we had meetings. Me and uh, People of the regu uh, regular union, you know, the union people. But they told us, said, well, we'll recognize your people and you can get raises like we get them and everything like that, but according to our charter, we just can't let blacks in. They didn't. So how could they, how could you be part of it and they could give you raises? I mean, what were they talking well, about? Well, they do that now. You see, this, it's law now. You don't have, the way, since Ronald Reagan was president, you see, they have, the, the, you don't, if it's really against the law to ask somebody to join the union if you're in the building. See, you, you, it's half of the people on these jobs now, like Kurt, uh, Chrysler Place, everybody out there not union. You can be non-union and can be union, but you still get the same salary. But out there, you know, it was, it was, it was a similar situation. But you see, every plant, every war plant in St. Louis did not hire black people during the war. Some, some did and some didn't. How did that work? The, the law was that you'd have to. Executive Order 8802, 1941, said that you would have to hire blacks. The Carter Carburetor Company, which is still over there on Palm Street in Spring, mm -hmm. did not hire blacks during the war. Well, I, I see, I've got a few notes here, and it says the FEPC hearing in 1944 in St. Louis discrimination charges were filed against AmeriCorps Corporation, Busman, 
Carter Carburetor, McDonnell Aircraft, McCoy Norris, St. Louis Shipbuilding and Steel, and Wagner Electric, Electric because they refused to Mac hire blacks. 1944. But they kept running ads that they needed help. Yeah, I know. They did need help, just like Carter. Uh, and Carter. they blamed, some of them blamed it on the white women not wanting, wanting to work with blacks. They blamed it on other people. And no, I, it was not. I, I, it, I know. It, they. I'm just saying what what they said. No, they, uh, you see, the, uh, President Roosevelt's, I mean, uh, yeah, President Roosevelt representative here at that time, named was Theodore Brown. He, he had an office set up downtown, incidentally, the building is the Paul Brown building downtown. That's where they had office, and that's where I was, I mean, this is how I managed to get to where I eventually became executive editor of the San Jose Marine, because I was writing stories I'm curious to write about all the discrimination because I was working with Theodore Brown who was coming into town all the time and he was telling me about the progress they were making. Now all of these companies you name like Buffalo and all that, they gave blacks jobs, you know, all of them weren't technical jobs of that sort, but Carter Carburetor didn't hire any blacks at all. And they were the ones making the, air, the carburetors for the airplanes that we were making. See, they made all of the carburetors. So, so some of this is not correct, what I said? Is that no, I'm saying, you're talking about 1944. Yeah. Well, the war just about was over a year later, 1945. But we didn't know it was going to be. Huh? I said we didn't know it was know going it, to be. You didn't know it, but this is all true what you have here. Oh, okay. I was yeah. just, I just wanted to be sure that you said, was, well, if it wasn't, I wanted to correct it on the tape. No, you're saying here that they filed suit, right? Yeah, that these, that these people never did hire... This is what I read. They, they refused blacks. Absolutely. Said, okay. Absolutely. All right. Now, now, um, I want to ask you why? Why was that so? Did they not hire blacks because of Mr. McDonald just plain didn't want to, uh, and he just well, McDonald, didn't. McDonald didn't own it at that time. It was Curtis Wright. The building wasn't McDonald well, it until. It was McDonald Aircraft. McDonald Aircraft then, did wasn't then in existence. Then they bought it. McDonald Not McDonald Douglas, but McDonald Mac Aircraft. No, that's Curtis Wright. It was Curtis Wright up until 1946 or 47. Then it changed to McDonald Douglas. No, uh, but it was McDonald Aircraft first, I think, Mr. Rogers. Then it was, then they turned into McDonald. Well, you Douglas. had McDonald Aircraft and Mac, Mac, McDonald, it was Curtis Wright, then McDonald, then McDonald Douglas. See, that building, not that, a whole building well, was... Well, it was a McDonald Aircraft before... They owned it. But it was named Curtis Wright. Well, I interviewed somebody who worked at McDonald Aircraft. Maybe I'm... Well, I worked at McDonald Aircraft. I mean, I worked at Curtis Wright. And Curtis Wright was McDonald. The whole building was Curtis Wright. Up until 1946 or 47. But how about before that? Before what? Well, all during there the wasn't a, originally all, there wasn't a McDonald during the, aircraft. All during the war, there was no McDonald Douglas or McDonald. No, there wasn't a McDonald Never during the war. Not during the war, no. Not during the war, there was, was Curtis Wright. It was Curtis Wright. Mm -hmm. I know well, I mean, I, I had an opportunity to go through the whole building because of uh, uh, this... Uh, well, that's a, sometimes you hear different stories 
Um, well, a lot of people could be confused, but I know personally that yeah. the whole the great big sign up there was Curtis Wright. Matter of fact, when uh, when when the mayor of St. Louis was killed in that helicopter thing out there, it was McDonald. It was Curtis Wright. Uh, they were trying out the helicopter after Curtis Wright. Okay. Well, let's let's go on and let me ask you: Was it these men that didn't want it? Was it the unions that didn't? Who who was really it was the keeping union. it? It was the union. I never I never heard anything about women not wanting to work with anything that I saw. Only thing about it, the, only, the best excuse they had was they said that their bylaws and their union was that they were to just hire Caucasians. I don't think they meant that. That was. I think that they were using that as an excuse. That's right. That's um. That's what I'm saying. Yeah. Um. You see, you see, um, around 1957 or something like that, our part of the St. Louis American took over an office on Grand and Cousin at the Carpenters Building. The mm -hmm. Carpenters Building was all white then. And the Carpenters Building was all white up until 1960-something, you see. Mm -hmm. And the Carpenters Union, you see, if a Carpenters Union won't admit blacks to membership, that means blacks can't work on those jobs. Especially at those times, it was Ronald Reagan who really broke up the union. You see, you could get a job. You couldn't get a job any place at those times. But uh, you take the pipe fitters union. We had a great big celebration the first time the pipe fitters union hired people, and that was when they, they he, people like Bill Clay and Sweets and somebody out of Oregon, and a politician had to sponsor uh, a youth to be a member of the pipe fitters union. You see. Now this was, this was way after the war. This was in the sixties, also. Well, Benny, down back in the forties, uh, did did people use the term that it was a it was a white folks' war, or did you feel that it was your war too, or were you? How, how did well, people feel? I mean, they were getting such bad treatment. Well, uh, let me explain to you about the war. You see, thousands of black people were killed in World War One. Right. Uh, now, if, if, if black people had the attitude in 1941 that it was a white folks' war, they had reason to it because I have a photograph in a book of a black man who was in World War I who lost his leg, and he was, and they had this parade in New York City, this all-white parade after World War I, and this black man who had been wounded over there and could not participate in the parade. You understand? Mm -hmm. Okay. The, the, the same thing happened. World War One, World War Two, Vietnam War, the Korean War, or Desert Storm War. After all these wars that they've had, black people still are are denied jobs, no matter how qualified they are. You can talk about affirmative action all you want to, but the, I know thousands of people who are qualified for jobs who go on these jobs every day. Well, since World War II, and they cannot get a job. Just like uh, I was just telling the lady here yesterday about uh, a preacher came in here. He says he's 85 years old, and she was at, and I was telling her about doing the reading. How I met him was I was writing a story in 1945, and I uh, discovered that it was about somewhere around 40 or 50 black people working in the post office and clerical jobs or carrying mail who may who had master degrees, you see. And this Reverend William Scott was one of those who had a master degree, but 
because he's black, he couldn't do nothing but work at a post office as a, as a mail clerk. Mm -hmm. And so the, this is the same thing. I mean, these people came out of the war in World War II. They couldn't get any job. There was no job for them. I had to make a job for myself. I had to make a job for myself, you know. That's the way it was. Every war we've ever had. They, they don't seem to care or appreciate the fact that we were the one who helped save the country, too. It's a hard nut to swallow, isn't it? It's really difficult. It's really difficult. And the saddest thing I ever saw was this picture of this, this, uh, this black soldier here with his uniform on, standing out there watching the parade, and the caption said that he wasn't allowed to participate in the New York parade because he's black. And here he lost that leg over there and during the war in Germany. But we've gone through the path, just like the Persian Gulf War. What did the black people get out of that war? Just tell me, just name me one thing. I, they have some right now who are complaining because they can't get jobs. You got thousands of them who are homeless. I saw pictures of, uh, on television of uh, some homeless people who had, worked, who had been in the Persian War. And, and, and a lot of them were black. Right now they're being discriminated against because they can't get jobs. What, what did the what did the newspaper what were you writing about after it was over? After it was over? Yeah. Or, or you, were you writing while it was going on? Oh yeah. I had All right. What were you what were you writing about? Well, I had a great opportunity at that time because my brother was with the 93rd Infantry. I, I guess that's what the that um, the group was in Arizona, and and he went to Italy and places like that. And he was telling me about the problems that the black troops were having over there during the war. And the, the problems that they were having was not with the people over there in France or Germany or Italy where they went. It was with the American white soldiers that gave them problems. Just like during World War One and World War Two, the white soldiers went to England and was telling all the women there that black men had tails, you see. This was no lie because, I mean, it was widespread. I've heard that. Yeah. Second World War II. Yeah, yeah. Well, they, and and, and uh, my brother was sending me information about what was going on over there. Now, he was in charge of the entertainment. I think it was 92nd, the Fort Huachuca. That's where my brother was. Mm -hmm. And he was pretty good. He sometimes considered himself a humorist. Of course, he's a <laughs> clinical psychologist now. He laughs at all these things. You know, he got a PhD, New York University. But that. That, of course, is a different side of the, the problems that black people have because he took his GI Bill and went to college and got himself an education. But you see, um, every, every, every black person or white person doesn't have the mental capabilities of advancing himself to that, you see. But education really is the key to it. The GI Bill is good. But right now, you, a lot of there's too much suffering going on. So the people from the Persian Gulf, I don't know whether they're benefiting from it at all. Do you know any statistics of of how many did, did black young black men use that after the after the war? Did what? Which war? The Second World War. Did the GI Bill. What happened? What? Did, did many black men use the GI oh, Bill? Oh yeah, sure. Yeah, sure they did because you find now uh, a whole lot of them in that area, you know, went on and 
got master degrees and PhDs and things of that sort, and not far more I think and than they do now. So I would, so you would say in that respect that the the war had had done something, had opened up that door. Well, it was, it was you know, but the door in the first place it was just like now they couldn't get jobs, so they say, well, I've gone on and fought in this war, so they're gonna give me these benefits, so I may as well go out, go ahead and utilize it. Mm -hmm. And at that time, you see, during World War II, it's different from now. Even if you go to college on a GI Bill, the, the excess is going to cost you so much money, you can't afford it. You know, colleges now, like Washington University, $17,000, you know, mm -hmm. to go. And the schools like where I went in 1934, 35 or something like that, and had to pay $150 a semester, well, it, it's now what? Two, three thousand just for a small school. It's a different situation. The GI Bill won't cover the, the full education. There were different impacts in this war for people. I mean, um, black and white, but we're talking about black, black now. White. They got away, they got out of this country, they were exposed uh, to things that, and people yeah. and yeah. places, and when they came back, maybe they thought they, there's something better. And well, they, they, they expected it. Well, I don't see it. I could have expected something better because after World War One, they didn't get anything better. You see, during World War One, the, the, uh, the NAACP wasn't for 10 years old, but the NAACP had to go to the, to the, the, uh, to the armed forces personnel and force them people into letting black people carry guns. The first blacks who were in World War One didn't have did the same thing I was doing it out to uh, Weldon Spring. They were hauling lumber to help build up things and like that. Mm -hmm. And it was that it was way late before they let them carry guns. Mm -hmm. They didn't let them get on the front with those guns, with, with the, you know, at that. You know, just like Philip uh, A. Philip Randolph them had to fight to get them to get jobs in World War Two. Then in World War One, you had to fight to carry arms or to. If you're over there, you may as well have a rifle like everybody else. So, people's expectations uh, were not realized if no. they had them. No, they weren't realized. They weren't. They weren't realized. Do you think people felt that it was going to be better? Did they feel that? Yeah. Did, did people say, well, we're, sure. we're, the doors are well, opening to the plants, and well, yeah, even it, though they're being forced, and we are going yeah, it, and it, fighting, and we do have airmen now? And well, here, here, this is one thing about it. You, you find very few traitors in the black race. You find very few communists in the black race. The, the, the black, black Americans, or African Americans, whatever we want to be called, we're about the truest group of people to this country. The background will show that. You know, the background, they say, well, this is our country, so we're going to have to go over there and fight for them. Just like, you know, you've seen these guys come back in the Persian Gulf, and they were talking about how glad they were to go and what they had done. But what happened after they came back here? You, you have thousands of them right now that the, the Army, well, they put them out of the Army. They can't get jobs now. And, you know, when they showed that thing on television about a month ago where a whole lot of these men who had thought of that were homeless, you know. Mm -hmm. That was sad. See, you're speaking, of, you're speaking of Army per se, 
the, the war was over before President Truman declared uh, declared that it should be integrated. That was in 1948. But the GI Bill went on anyway, right? Huh? The GI Bill went on before that, even though the troops had not been integrated. Yeah, I know. They had, uh, they had segregated, you know, uh, that was uh, the Executive Order 9981 that President Truman issued in 1948. But I'm just saying, all of, this is where a lot of controversy went on overseas in France and Italy and places of that sort where the black men were stationed. Mm -hmm. You know, they had complete segregation. And I was in touch with a whole lot of them. Uh, you know, they, in Germany, the army seemed to have set up regular re regular residences for some troops. They, they still have them over there in Germany. And a whole lot of them were black. Uh, if we can come back to St. Louis and the unions, um, wasn't there a part of the CIO that... Uh, they broke it up. You see... That the, was helpful to the blacks? That's right. You was, see... Was it black or white? Or a mixture? It was mixed. Tell me about that. The AFL, the AFL maintained its, its whiteness, you know, refuel mm -hmm. now. Well, then they came in here with the CIO, uh, I think, I don't know what year it was, but uh, you had Ernest Calloway, mm -hmm. Ernest Calloway, and then you had uh, this fellow with the Teamsters Union who died not so long ago, big tall fellow. They had Richard Kavner, all these guys from New York, they came in with that CIO. And they had, then after the CIO started integrating their unions and things, then they had what they called AFL-CIO. Mm -hmm. They seem to have merged, you see. But this is where they start rolling and getting blacks into jobs. But still, the type of job they had was not the job that we would have in construction work, you know, like carpenters work, the, the plumbers, the steam fitters, and all that, where the guys make, right now making $23, $24 an hour, mm -hmm. something like that. Now, you didn't, you didn't have, not automobile plants, you didn't have any problems there. Because just like the Ford plant, the Ford plant has always been integrated. Of course, they want they don't, they have, uh, they have one now over at Hazelwood, but you know, they had problems when it was on Forest Park and Sarah years ago. That was before World War II. So when you were integrated into the CIO, when, when black, they could work as, as defense workers and not just as the uh, laborers? Yeah, Bill. See, I know they have everything to do with defense jobs. They didn't have any of those contracts. The AFL was on it was on a person during the war. You talking about? Well, you're talking about after the war now. After the CIO didn't start till after the war. CIO didn't start till after the war. And I know that to be a fact. Somewhere around, let's see, Callaway came to St. Louis, I think, around 19, maybe it had about one year, about 44 or something like that. AFL-CIO, but International Association of Machinists controlled nearly all of the plants. They, they controlled Chevrolet Shell, the, the Cartridge Plant, and Curtis Wright. International Association of Machinists. They have their office not right out there where I live on, off of, right off of 270, you know, St. John Rock Road. But the damnest thing about that is, right now they have a president who is black. 
Cassell Williams is president of the union that formerly would not admit black people. Mr. Williams. Cassell Williams. He's the aerospace that 837. That's right. Right. Well, that's, that, yes. That's and a part of International Association Machinists. And I interviewed a, a man and his wife. He, that's the one I said that said he worked at McDonnell Aircraft. They said that that man is so wonderful to them, treats them so wonderful, yeah. that uh, it's just beyond words. Well, he'd have to be, well, that's just like Jackie Robinson have to be an educated man to be playing baseball in the white yeah, world. So. Yeah, well, they just so you have to be superior his, to get the position. Sing his praises. Uh, like to have a clear understanding for the tape that uh, of how the segregation was done as far as the plants or integration uh -huh. in that they weren't all alike and no, they weren't all alike carter carbrader didn't hire any blacks during the war at all, at all. No, even though but curtis wright what it did it set up a separate plant a separate, a separate plant. section where the blacks were now for a while apart uh, the, the the cartridge plant and the Chevrolet plant was the the blacks worked in there, but there was a lot of position that they had where they didn't work. Right, the blacks worked in groups and whites worked in groups. This is how they did it, you see. Mm -hmm. But they were in the same plants, you see. But they were doing defense work. Yeah, doing the same type of work as uh -huh. the whites. Yeah. Uh -huh. All right, and probably people blacks or. Negroes in those days started out in, in a janitorial way, and and then not necessarily because I think that no 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 I mean but that, that they would maybe have hired them for those more menial jobs yeah in right. the very beginning just right, the natural right. normal jobs but but at Curtis right we had to go to school mm -hmm. and we had had left the education and we you know books and then actual work with airplanes before we were sent out there to do it mm -hmm. you know. But and and how was it for you out there? Did you ever, was there any, ever any problems coming out of your, your Quonset hut type of, of? No, uh, no, we, we, everybody did their job well, you know, and uh, we never had any complaints. We may, I think we had one complaint one time. A, a fellow accidentally put a hole too big in an airplane, and then when it got further away from our plant off somewhere than they complained about it. And uh, one, one thing that I, that I did out there, I invented a process where you, you didn't have to, I, it, it saved the government a whole lot of money, you know. I, in, I invented a process where the, the, the pneumatic machine could press all sides of rivets at the same time without changing all that. Because I had some kind of a, well, I had some kind of a, 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 some kind of material that I made that I worked with, and and instead of just crushing the smaller rivets, the pressure would be so it would be level to where you could have eight or nine different ribbons at the same time and run mm -hmm. them over. So they they honored me by putting my picture in the newspaper and they sent me some kind of certificate, but they are. Save thousands of dollars for that because you know, because if you have to change your gun and all that stuff every time you have a different type of rivet in there, then you, that's a it's, it's a you know a whole lot of hours it would. Do you have that picture? 
No, you're talking about the guy, she, you know, way back, this was 1943, you know. Um, but was, was there an attitude uh, of, of, I mean, if you get on the bus and there were white workers or... Um, we didn't have... No problem. I don't remember but about two white workers being on the bus with us at, at the same time. You see, the bus that we... The, the bus for the black people going out there, our bus stopped at, at Jefferson and Delmar. See? Jefferson and Delmar, and they, and they didn't pick up no other place. You'd have to walk or catch a bus to get to Jefferson and Delmar to catch the bus, and it would go all the way out there. You know, just like uh, what, you know, Bill Feeman, you know, Bill Feeman, our cartoonist, we were just talking the other day about how we could, the bus would drop us off there at midnight or something like that, and we could walk from Jefferson and Delmar all the way to Vanderbilt and Westville to one of those clubs out there, and nobody would bother us. No crime, no, mm -hmm. wouldn't worry about somebody sticking us up. You try that now, you get your brains rolling out, you know. And, that, and that's true, too. I was just checking these statistics. I, statistics I got from the police department about doing the war. I know that's not a part of what, what you want, but the five years during the war, the five years during the war, there was a total of 309 homicides in St. Louis. The lowest... Did all of St. Louis? The lowest of any five years on record was during the war. Now here, this is the war here you take I'm starting from here. 1940. Took 45, 309 homicides, the lowest in history in the city of St. Louis. It's, that's very interesting. And the second lowest was the five years before the war, 319. The depression. Yeah, but here now you get getting down here. It starts here after the uh, Korean War, the Vietnam, whatever. Started escalating. 180, 254, all nine in the twos now here. There's something to that, some kind of place. But the lowest homicides in history in St. Louis was during that war. See? Why do you think? I don't know. I don't really know. It's pretty low during these other years here, but this is when the cuckoo gangs were killing each other, you know, over alcohol and liquor. Alcohol and uh, uh, territories, territories and things of that sort. What do you think it was that, that pulled the... St. Louis together. St. Louis hadn't been pulled together. Uh, during the war, you don't feel like it was pulled together at all? I don't, I don't see how, because, uh, you see, they bombed, when they bombed Pearl Harbor, and the war started, after the, after the war in 45, when they, when they raised that flag, it was about, a month or two later that the war plants let out and we were the last hired and the first fired and all of the unemployment offices were crowded you see every day there was no place to go there was no place to go now, i don't know what pulled them together yet back in back in the days of a, right after the war the NAACP had pretty good leadership going in st louis you know and things like that and then you had what I was trying to tell you about the, uh, about the CIO union. Mm -hmm. Oh I, yeah. You know, I was mm -hmm. I was at I was one of those who was right there with Ernest Callaway. They have to have those meetings and things all the time. 
Matter of fact, they were the ones who thought at core in St. Louis. If you, you may know about it, you may not know about it. See, but core was started. Core was started about the same. Racial right? equality. Yeah, that's right. And you had fellows like Marvin Rich. He's Jewish. He's now head of uh, some human rights commission in New York. And Richard Cab Dick Kavner, they call him. And you had a Rosalind Greenbaum from University City. She was married to a doctor, but she was in there fighting every day. This is when you start talking about pulling together. These are the people who pulled it together. See, and you had some black doctor named Dr. Chambliss, and well, Ernest is why Ernest Calloway, and then you had uh, Vivian Moore. I knew all them people because I was I was meeting right with them. I was getting good stories out of what they were doing. Mm -hmm. See. And what were they trying to do? Oh, they were doing it. They were fighting discrimination in storage, and they could go downtown. A black woman could go downtown, and some of those stores they couldn't even try a hat on. You know, they couldn't try a hat on. You couldn't try shoes on. Was that the Citizen Civil Rights Committee? No. No. No, the only people I know who were working and breaking that up was the court. The, the St. Louis Committee on Racial Equality. That's right. And, um, Did you yeah. ever hear of the Citizen Civil Rights Committee, Pearl Maddox? They did some sit-ins and... That must have been before my time. I was just born in 14, you know. <laughs> this was 1944. What was it connected with? Uh, well, it was connected with the themselves, really. They, they got together and they... What's the name of some of the people? Pearl Maddox is one, and uh, um, I think Henry Wheeler might have been with him. Herman Dreer? No, Henry Wheeler. Henry Wheeler was with the St. Louis American then. He was writing a column with me every day. Well? Writing a column called The, Sp the Spider's Web. I know. Um, what about... Uh, I, know per I knew Pearl Maddox. Mm -hmm. Uh, it came out of that same article that I have been qu quoting from. They may have had an organization, but I don't know what they they did as far as civil rights are concerned. Well, they said, here it is, Fighting for Democracy in St. Louis, Civil Rights During World War II. And it, it tells about uh, the Mayor's Commission um, and that they sat down in the uh, lunch counters downtown. Um, who, that, that group did? Uh-huh. I know what CORE did. I don't know anything about that. Well, it was the forerunner. It, they did it before CORE. The St. Louis branch of Congress of Racial Equality organized in 1948, also focused on the department stores. They just did it before. Um, I don't think it got much uh, attention from the uh, press or anything. Oh, but see, what they did with before, I, see, I started the American in 45. Now, in, in war years, you see, people had their attention focused on other things besides mm -hmm. something like that. Yeah. And that must have been around 43 or something like that. I know Pearl. 44. Yeah. But they yeah. didn't exist after 45, else no. I would have written about No, they, uh, yeah. they right. stopped. They stopped. Um, that's, that's probably too because you see, there was another uh, a school teacher named Robert P. Watts was out there fighting at that time. Mm -hmm. Robert P. Watts, you know, the uh, Board of Education 
threatened to fire him if he kept on fighting for civil rights, you know, and things like that. And that was before 45. Uh, did you ever hear of the Fellowship of Reconciliation? They called it the Four. They did some surveys of public utilities, and uh, it was the March on Washington uh, movement had to do with that. There would just seem to be a lot of different small things that were going on to, um, uh, like the race relations, Mayor Becker's, and then he died. He, he put together a race Mayor relations. Beck. Yeah. And then Was he the one killed in the helicopter crash? Right. Uh -huh. And then Mayor Kaufman uh, con uh, began it, the Race Relations Commission. Uh -huh. Things like they're always having another commission. What happens when they, when they, when you read about another commission? Wh how do you feel? Is I, my opinion about those race relations commissions. I mean, my experience with those groups are, is that uh, they always elect a chairman or some or something like that. Then, in about six or seven months, you find that he has accepted a job somewhere where they previously hadn't hired a black person, and. Uh, it, it seemed to me that they're the people who get benefit from those things, you know. Mm -hmm. I, mm -hmm. But they, they, none of those groups were like uh, the NAACP back there at CORE. See, CORE and, and the NAACP did things from, uh, from, from 48, you know, up through the years where you could mm -hmm. show some sort of achievements, you know, like in the... Uh, the, uh, the, the, the covenant, racial co the covenant yeah. over there, you know, the covenant. Mm -hmm. And then uh, Jefferson the Bank. Lloyd Bank's case, Lloyd Gaines Gain. case on school, seg mm -hmm. school segregation. And uh, the, the newest one would be the Jefferson Bank. Mm -hmm. that, see, that was one of those periods after the war, you know, right. that was. 63. Yeah, where it, it, it was. It was a shame that the black people here, the churches and all those people who are there, be taking their money to a bank where you couldn't be a clerk. Yeah. Yeah. I want to go back to something that happened during the early 40s, uh, which was Sykeston. Yeah. And Witherspoon was a lawyer down there. Then you mean where they, they dragged a black man behind an automobile to the flesh fall off his bones? Uh-huh. Mm-hmm. That's right because he was accused of raping a white woman and they found out it wasn't he wasn't he wasn't the right the man at all. Matter of fact it wasn't rape. They tied him to they put put one rope on the bump of a car and then wrapped the other rope around him and dragged him through the town. You know, that that was a pretty rough period down there. Pretty rough period. And then when you talk talk about advancing it's the same as the International Association uh, 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 machinists, Sykeston had a black mayor recently. I don't know whether they have one now. I know they had a black mayor three years ago. But you and I have been sitting here talking about trying to get people in defense plants and what it was like then. And and uh, and two years before that, this happened in Sykeston, Missouri. Yeah. Yeah, and then two years before that, they. Up in Maryville, Missouri, they took a black man up on the top of the school and, and chained him up there and set the school up there because he was accused of, a, of, of raping a teacher. 
what does this do to, um, what does what something like Sykeston do to people in the 40s here? Uh, where, where could they put their anger? Um, where could they put their fear? Uh, if I was a little child and heard that, I'd be scared to death. Yeah, I know. It's um, it, it's. Uh, Why shouldn't you be? Right, and I. All this time we've been talking, I've been thinking, it, it's hard to figure why there never were riots here. Um, yeah, a lot of people think you know, I got have history books that say there was a riot, but it wasn't no, a riot. The riot was in East St. Louis. Right. Well, that was in 17, yes, 17. 1917. I'm yeah. It's amazing that there never was a riot. Um, I, I think I think the black people contained themselves beautifully through the years, you know, from what has happened. Uh -huh. You know, like uh, especially you've had this this shooting over here in this house some years ago. You know where the old man was in the rocking chair, and the policeman shot through there and killed him and things of that sort. Mm -hmm. In other cities, that would have caused a riot. Uh. What uh, what were the churches doing during the war? Some was making up collecting so the preacher could buy himself a Cadillac, and some were out there doing what they should have been doing. I can recall uh, St. Paul Church was right in the middle of things, you know, working for civil rights and trying to get a black person on the school board. Then you had St. James Church, who had a very good pastor, and then you had Lutheran churches and like that. But you have a lot of other kinds of churches who who really weren't doing anything. Um, did you ever go down to the uh, Negro uh, USOs or get involved in anything like that, or report on it? When when I got to the UF, when I got to those uh, places, they were all integrated by the time I got around to them. Okay. Um, I don't think they were segregated too long. I don't know yet. I, I'm going to interview Virgie McNeil, who worked, who went to one, and uh, so I I just haven't gotten information on that yet. Did, did you did you hear anything about them being segregated? Mm-hmm. I imagine they would have been. Especially in the beginning, if they if the if the schools and the war plants are segregated, why shouldn't they <laughs> they be too? Yeah. Um, the other thing, uh, and yet I was I listened to this tape I had done with Marie Williams, and she had been hired by the Red Cross to go overseas, and uh, we were discussing the how interesting that was that they had such a hard time Negroes were having a hard time here getting a job and yet the Red Cross was uh, happy to have them and I said well were there just a few she said no uh, they were all over they came from all over the country and the Red Cross women that I've spoken to the Caucasian ones here what they did was the um, uh, hostesses type, you know. Uh -huh. Marie 
did the kind of social work, which was the link between the, the soldier and the family. Mm -hmm. um, and she said that they required of them to have a college education, whereas the, the white girls that were doing the same thing were... Just like Jackie Robinson in baseball and, 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 uh, and Dizzy Dean, huh? Yeah. Lizzie Dean didn't have to even pass the fourth grade, but Jackie Robinson had to go to college. Um, do you remember Wendell Pruitt? Sure, I know Wendell Pruitt. I know Wendell. I knew his whole family. I know him, yeah. Tell me about Wendell Pruitt. Well, I, actually, he wasn't the person who was out in the limelight. He was just a nice person, you know. That's just what a, I hear. He's yeah, just a nice, nice person. Nice, nice person. Another person, another person who was killed in that war, who went to the Tuskegee, was named McCullough. You never hear about McCullough, and he was killed around the same time. McCullough's father used to own a, a little confectionery store right next to Abuja School on Pepin Street, where he served spaghetti and stuff like that for the kids, you know. And then his son grew up, nice husky kid. He went to Tuskegee, and he was killed, but you never hear about him. Do you remember his first name? No, but I know his name was McCullough. I know that part about it. Think his father's still living? Oh, no, he couldn't have been, because yeah, I'm talking about 19 and 19 now, mm -hmm. when his father was old and And I was, that's when I was in Bashan, 19 and... Ni I mean, I, I moved to school in 1919, mm -hmm. but he was selling that stuff for years afterwards. And, and this kid, he was... You know, these real nice boys, you know, just like Hugh White, because Hugh White didn't get killed. But he, he just died, I guess, Hugh died about 10, 12 years ago. Mm -hmm. He went to Tuskegee, too. He was one of those airmen. But um, Luther Pruitt, or Wendell Pruitt, had to be, he had to be a nice person because his whole family are top people, you know, and they still live on Garfield, mm -hmm. 4,500 blocks. Um. Where do you think the uh, black community sees itself today in St. Louis? Where do they feel that they fit in, or um, I don't know. It's politically we may be advancing, but we're not advancing where we should be with with the p black population being 51%. Of course, it's going to be greater than that about three or four years from now because uh, black people are moving to South St. Louis now. And then by year 2000, South St. Louis is going to be predominantly black also because the white people are going to be moving further out to the suburbs or St. Charles or some places like that or going back to Alabama. I don't know where they're going because it's, it's going to be difficult for the whites to try to evade it because the suburbs are loaded with blacks too. Yeah. You can't find a suburb in the county where there aren't black people. I don't know where they're going to run, but they're running. They're running like, running like hell. The, the, the vans are down there now loading up. You know, Shenandoah and Koski Esco and somebody asked me the other day where I was Bates Street. I said, oh God. Well, Bates Street the black people been on Bay Street since about 1912. That's in the Crown left. But on the, from here all the way through now, you, you can't find a street for anyone in the black. I was just talking to Jim Lawrence the other day. He's a, 
he's a he's a retired editorial page editor of the Post Dispatch, and he has he has a some apartments that he bought down in South St. Louis. He lived down there too, and he was talking about because he's never gone. He he's he's the integration all the way. He was talking about how the people on this block, and he never tell you that they black or white because he just speak about people. And then I'm finding out that a whole lot of people on his block now are, are black. And he lives on Connecticut, 3,700 or 3,600 on Connecticut. So that means that he may stay, but the rest of the white people be gone soon. As soon as they can get enough money to get another house and pay for that, that, that uh, van to move them away. Uh, before we leave this, World War II era, I want to see if we can pick up a little bit on the March, March on Washington movement. Um, it seems as though they were responsible for trying to get just more than one thing done in St. Louis. They mm -hmm. had a rally. In 41? Yeah. Uh, well, do you remember? You had some black leaders, good black leaders in 41. You had uh, Attorney George Bond. And T.D. McNeil, and then you had Henry Winfield Wheeler, and you had, uh, gosh, you had, Callaway wasn't here then, and you had David M. Grant, mm -hmm. you know, David M. Grant. Lawyer. Yeah. I got a picture right there of the group that them people you're talking about. Here, I got a picture you'll enjoy. Might be the same one. Yeah, that's it. That's it. Yeah, you had great black leadership. And 41, you had Jordan W. Chambers. He was the he was the boss behind all of them, you know that. So here's that's Dave Grant, and that's Jordan Chambers. Right. And mm -hmm. that's see these are the ones I named. Mm -hmm. T D McNeil. <laughs> well I didn't come to you because I, I knew you knew what was going on. Here's, huh? here's a penny I picked up off the floor. I just for good luck. around there. My drawers are so full I made this fall up. Uh, this is what and they're holding up signs Carter employs 3,000 people not one Negro is that democracy that's correct March that's on Washington this committed. is right this is what I'm saying and they never did they did they did well this what was this 1992 yeah this was in the paper not long ago yeah. on that magazine section where you pick up you know like years ago right that's right yeah, President Roosevelt says no discrimination. St. Louis War Industries replies says you. And uh, shut our mouths, stop our marches, jobs, democracy, freedom. This man was the power behind the whole damn thing. See, he was Chambers. A, he was a Republican until 1932. Uh, he didn't he didn't vote for Roosevelt the first time, but then when uh, after he found out what Roosevelt was for and what he had done in the 1936 election, that's when he turned a Democrat. See, and that that stirred up the whole thing. That changed the city. It changed the whole city the whole thing from the city. Republican to. Yeah, yeah. Well, well, you see, the first the first state representative they had in the city of St. Louis was a black man. That was Wall. I mean, the first black was Walter Moore. That was around 1928 or 29 because almost everybody was Republican then.